initiation, as I've argued in the past, always carries with it a, a sense of risk, whether that's real or perceived. Uh, we know that in traditional initiations, there was real risk to, to life or life and limb, that there was real danger involved, that in order to demonstrate one's commitment and worthiness to pursue the mysteries, one had to be willing to, to risk one's life. In modern initiations, the, the perceived risk is to life and limb. Uh, you know, that even if we're talking about initiations into a, a, a college fraternity or sorority, there is, there is a sense of danger, a sense of, of risk of psychodrama. But there is a real risk in initiation as well. And the real risk, I think, is, is very, very specific in, in Freemasonry, in Rosicrucianism, in, uh, in Martinism. And that's a risk to something that is much more precious than our bodily life and limb. It's a risk to our preconceived notions of ourselves and, and our place in the world. You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. Okay, welcome back to our final session for, uh, for Conclave 2021 held in the ether, uh, in the, in the, on the astral plane. Um, this last session uh, is entitled Constant Chevillon, Modern Martyr, uh, given by His Grace, Dr. William Bean, Primate of the United States. His Grace, Dr. William Bean, is the Archbishop of Wisconsin and Primate for the United States of America for the Apostolic Johannite Church. He received his PhD in philosophy from DePaul University and is the author of The Historical Pivot, Philosophy of History in Hegel, Schelling, and Holderlin, as well as articles on a wide range of philosophical topics. In addition to his duties within the AJC, His Grace also teaches philosophy in the Chicago area, specializing in ethics and the history of philosophy. Um, so with that, uh, welcome, and I will turn it over to His Grace. Thank you so much, Your Eminence. Um, this is uh, a, a challenging uh, presentation for me because I'm, I'm coming on the heels of, of so many wonderful uh, presentations uh, this this weekend and uh, this one's going to tend a little bit more towards the dry and deadly um this this is uh, a very straightforward uh, uh historical uh account um and i even can't claim a whole lot of of credit uh for the for the work itself because uh, i'm uh, deeply deeply indebted to a presentation by the uh, Grand Loge Symbolique de France, um, which this presentation follows uh, in, in many cases almost word for word in both form and, and content. So I can't claim that any of the, the research that went into this is my own. Uh, rather, what I'm doing is, is gathering and sort of collating uh, the work of others. So. Uh, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply indebted to, uh, to all of those who have, have done this research for me. Uh, Constant Chevillon is a, a, 
interesting figure in the recent history of the Gnostic Church, and he does stand as the sort of last great modern martyr uh, to Gnosticism. We've talked about uh, early Christian martyrs. We've talked about, uh, you know, even the the martyrdom of the 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 Cathars during the Albigensian Crusade and so on and so forth. But this is something recent. This is something in in living memory. Um, he is uh, officially canonized by the AJC and by other churches. He was canonized officially by the AJC in 2014. And I think it was it's worthwhile to, to read the text from uh, the AJC canonization. Um, and here I quote, in recognition of his worthiness as an exemplar of the Gnostic path through devotion to Christ and gnosis in life and martyrdom and death, and recalling the respect and esteem held by the community of Gnostics, Gallican Catholics, independent and esoteric jurisdictions throughout the world, we rightly, duly, and canonically declare Monsignor Constant Chevillon raised to the altars of the Apostolic Ionite Church on the 70th anniversary of his martyrdom. We call upon the Apostolic Ionite Church to honor his memory, recalling his virtue and the teaching given by his example. For this purpose, we set aside the 22nd day of March, for the celebration of liturgy in his honor, that his name may be invoked in the public prayer of the church. So this is somebody who has a, a special significance for, for the AJC. He was an important figure in Egyptian Freemasonry and in Martinism, uh, as well as the uh, patriarch of the Iglesia Gnostica Universal. He was born in 1888, uh, died in 1944, was closely associated with uh, Jeanne Bricot, uh, and also with uh, Bricot's widow, uh, Eugenie. Um, and in fact, the three of them, as I'm going to uh, mention later on, are, are buried together. In 1944, he was assassinated by uh, the agents of the, the Vichy government, the French Nazi government. And so he really was martyred very much for his uh, esoteric and, and religious connections. He was a prolific writer and a, a tireless worker in both his, his secular and spiritual life. Uh, every account that I've ever read is that he was sort of constantly exhausted. Uh, because he gave himself over to, uh, to his work with, with, with such zeal. According to his friend and successor, René Chambéon, his face was gentle, serious, and mysterious, expressing both intelligence and kindness. And in many ways, uh, Chevillon was a model of a, a pious and simple Christian. Um, he you know, was somebody that uh, was very much in the, the tradition, not of, of great abstract theologians or uh, princes of the, of the church, but somebody who lived a Christian life uh, simply and, and devoutly. The best sources for information about his life, uh, and they are very, very scant in English, um, but the best sources are the Journal Initiation and uh, Les Feuilles d'Armapoli, edited by Gilbert Tapa, and also his correspondence with Madame Brucot and comments from people like, like René Chambéron, 
So I really just want to go through, uh, and this is going to be fairly brief, um, just go through uh, some uh, biography of, of Chevillon. He was born um, in uh, 188, I have two different dates in my notes, so I'm suddenly second guessing myself. Somebody can uh, double check my, uh, my dates here. Uh, born October 26, 1880 or 1888 uh, in Anlois, which is a small town, very small town, um, a couple of hundred uh, residents, uh, not far from Dijon. Um, the, interestingly, there is a Rue Constant Chevillon uh, in Anwan now. Uh, so there is a, a street that is named for him. As is so often the case with uh, great figures, he excelled in school early on despite his family's poverty. Uh, his family were uh, 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 poor peasants. Uh, thank you. Uh, Jerry, for uh, confirming that the, the date is 1880, not 1888. So my my first uh, uh, first note there was was a typographical error on my part. Um, so thank you. Um, so he was uh, you know from a very poor family, but um, he came to the attention of the the local schoolmaster and the parish priest, and he studied Latin uh, with the local parish priest, and he seemed destined for the, the priesthood. Um, he entered the seminary, but after his uh, ordination to the diaconate, he sort of realized that the Catholic priesthood was not the direction that he wanted to take with his life. And instead, he turned to the academic study of, of philosophy. Um, and he studied at um, the University in Lyon, and ultimately received uh, both a, a bachelor's degree and a licentiate. He studied with the French philosopher uh, Arthur Hennequin, and um, Hennequin is, is not really well known uh, outside of France, and, and not really particularly well known within France, um, but he certainly uh, exerted a profound, profound influence on Chevillon, so much so he was so attached to, to his professor that uh, when Professor Hennequin died in uh, 1905, uh, Chevillon left the university. And he uh, got a job working for the Societe Generale and ultimately uh, joined the Banque Nationale de Crédit, uh, where he worked for the rest of his life. So he was a, he was a banker, he was a bank administrator uh, in his secular life. He was married in 1906, uh, divorced in 1910. Um, but starting in 1911, there begins a, a sort of transformation in, uh, in, in his life. Um, he created a, a literary society or a salon, and he gave uh, talks to, about art, literature, philosophy. And it was in this same year, in 1911, that he met uh, Jean-Baptiste Roche, who was a, a poet and astrologer. And Roche seems to have been Chevillon's entree into the occult world. Uh, the, prior to this, he does not seem to have any um, particular uh, you know, occult or, or mystical leanings. Though certainly uh, his uh, interest in 
um, in religion and, and philosophy and art. And we've been talking a lot about, uh, about art, as Monsignor Rosbach has uh, sort of noted, uh, and the, the intersection between, between art and, and Gnosticism this weekend. So uh, this, I don't think, is, is particularly uh, unusual uh, in this context. Um, he was close to uh, Roche for uh, some time. And according to uh, Madame Bricot, Roche predicted in 1912 not only the outbreak of the First World War, but also the specific manner of death of Constant Chavillon, whom he specifically wrote would die outside shot. And it is through Roche that uh, Chavillon meets Jean Bricot. During the, the Great War, he fought in the Alsace and uh, later in the Somme. He was seriously injured, um, was injured twice in his arm. And he suffered the effects of, of that injury his whole life, um, though it, it certainly didn't uh, cripple him. He lived in a significant amount of pain. Uh, after the war, uh, his association with Bricol became uh, even closer. And he really could be uh, honestly described as a kind of disciple of uh, Jean Bricot. Uh, Bricot, of course, was the successor to uh, Douanel as the patriarch of the uh, Iglesia Gnostique Universal, really the, the first of these, uh, the, the, the French neo-Gnostic churches to which many of the current Gnostic churches uh, owe their, their descent. Um, Brico initiated Chevillon, um, but also put him in touch with, uh, with Papu. So uh, we can see that Chevillon is really plugged into uh, a lot of the really important esoteric and, uh, and occult currents that are uh, flowing in, in France uh, after the, the Great War. Um, so he's right at the heart of that. He is centered in Lyon, but as we're going to say later on, he travels uh, quite extensively, and that's uh, going to be an important part of his, uh, his esoteric life. He was uh, a Freemason, though we don't know exactly when he was uh, initiated into Freemasonry, probably um, 1913. Uh, we know that in 1919, he uh, received the, the Martinist SI, um, and in it wasn't until 1921 that he becomes directly involved with the Iglesia Nostique Universal. Um, during this time, he really seems to have uh, put a, a, an enormous degree of focus into his esoteric work. In 1923, he was elevated to the 95th degree of the Rite of Memphis Mizraim and became Patriarch Grand Conservator of the Rites. So uh, he was operating within uh, what we call Egyptian Freemasonry, in particular, the, the Rite of Memphis in Mizraim. By 32, he had been appointed Substitute Grand Master of Memphis Mizraim. The Grand Master at the time was, was Jean Bricot, and he was designated as uh, Bricot's successor. In 1934, when Bricot dies on February 21st, 1934, Chevillon succeeds him, not just uh, in Memphis and Mizraim, but in 
uh, a whole range of Rosicrucian, Masonic, uh, ecclesiastical, uh, and esoteric dignities. He becomes Grandmaster of the Martinist Order, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the significance of that because he represents uh, one particular stream in uh, the Martinist tradition. He becomes Grandmaster of the Rite of Memphis Mizraim, the Rector of the Ordre Cabalitiste uh, de Rosecroix Gnostique, uh, and Patriarch of the Iglesia Gnostique Universelle as well as the Iglesia Gallicaine. Um, interestingly, though he's uh, appointed to the uh, Patriarchate of the EGU and the Iglesia Gallicaine, he's not yet um, consecrated as a bishop. Um, and he doesn't uh, receive the, the episcopate, um, ironically, until on January of, of 1936. Um, so it's uh, well over... Uh, all, almost two years um, before he uh, receives his uh, consecration to uh, fully become the patriarch of the Iglesia Gnostique Universelle and the uh, Iglesia Gallicaine. Um, he was consecrated by Louis-François Giraud, who was uh, the, the patriarch of the Iglesia Gallicaine, um, or uh, was a, 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 a bishop of the uh, Iglesia Gallicaine. And he took the name Tau Harmonius. And Tau Harmonius is uh, the name by which he is generally referred in uh, esoteric circles. So um, when you see the references in the, uh, the, the EG calendar or um, other French-influenced Gnostic churches to Tau Harmonius, uh, we're referring to Constant Chevillon. So I know I'm uh, barreling through this very, very quickly, and, and I, I do want to, to keep this very, very brief, but, but I do want to sort of follow a brief uh, discursus here, a brief interlude, and talk about the, um, I think, at least, amusingly named uh, Fudosi and Fudofsi, um, these two organizations uh, that uh, aimed it to be umbrella organizations for a number of, of esoteric groups. Now, Fudosi is the Federation Universal des Autres Societies Initiatiques, the Universal Federation of uh, order, uh, Initiatic Orders and Societies. Um, that was founded in 1934 by Amorx, Harvey Spencer Lewis and others. And it was uh, formally dissolved in 1951. It specifically excluded Freemasons. And in fact, uh, members of the Fudosi uh, member organizations uh, were forbidden on pain of expulsion uh, to be Freemasons. So there really is, in, on this one side, a radical split between Rosicrucianism, uh, Martinism and and Freemasonry. Oh. Now, the latter, the second, is the Fudofsi, the Federation Universelle des Ordres Fraternité et Société Initiative. Um, and it's an interesting distinction. You can see that these, these titles are almost identical. 
um, the second one being the Universal Federation of Initiatic Orders, Fraternities, and Societies. And certainly the inclusion of the word fraternity here is meant to include Freemasonry. Uh, the latter here was founded in 1939. It was headed by Chevillon, and so it specifically included the right of Memphis Mizraim. Um, the real sort of spearhead, the, the real sort of uh, founder of uh, the second organization uh, was Swinburne Clymer of the, the FRC, the Fraternitas Rosicrucius. So the difference between these two organizations um, is historically and, and in reality more about personalities than it is anything else. Um, to be sure, Swinburne Clymer and uh, Harvey Spencer Lewis spent a great deal of, of time and energy and uh, psychic commitment in pissing in each other's Wheaties um, and, you know, telling one another that they were, uh, you know, not the one true Rosicrucian fraternity. Um, but there were some legitimate differences between these organizations. Chevillon's organization, Fudovsky, seemed to be more comfortable with the, the idea of centralized uh, lodge-controlled lineages, such as we see in the Grand Lodge structure of, of Freemasonry. And it seems to have had some opposition to the idea of free initiatorship. Uh, in the Martinist tradition in particular, uh, the, uh, the position of free initiator essentially circumvents any centralized Grand Lodge authority because it allows the, the free initiator to initiate all the way up to creating another free initiator um, without appeal to any other authority. Now, this would prove to be particularly important in the uh, initiatic orders in France and Germany uh, after the Second World War, because both the Nazi and the Vichy regimes outlawed and actively persecuted esoteric organizations. And in many cases, uh, there were organizations that were left without a kind of centralized leadership and became moribund as a result. Those that relied on free initiatorship were able to sustain themselves much more uh, easily because there was no necessity of, the, of a continuity of a particular Grand Lodge. So this idea of the centralized lodge structure is very much in keeping with um, the Masonic uh, roots and, and the Masonic way of working. So as much as I sort of joke about the sort of ego battle between uh, Clymer and Lewis and, uh, and their, their respective factions. Um, they do represent two different approaches to uh, Western esotericism, uh, one rooted in, in the Freemasonic tradition and the other functioning uh, very much independently of that. So enough about Fudos and Fudovsi. Um, even after Bricot's death, uh, Chevillon remains very, very close friends with uh, Eugénie 
Bricot, uh, Jean Bricot's um, uh, widow. Um, yeah, yes, thank you, uh, Your Excellency. I'm, I'm glad that it's not just me, that those are legitimately ridiculous and hilarious names for organizations, um, especially when they're uh, abbreviated and, and uh, uh, you know, they uh, are, 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 we use the, the acronyms. Sorry, my, I had a sort of brain fart there for a second. Um, so during this time after uh, Bricot's death, um, as I said, Chevillon is traveling very extensively all over France, primarily for his secular work, uh, working for the uh, Banque Nationale, um, and which I, I guess becomes the Banque Nationale de Commerce et Crédit, and it, it undergoes a couple of, of transformations, but he stays at that one organization um, throughout his career. But this travel allows him to remain in close contact with uh, members of the various orders that he supervises. And it, it's funny for me to, to think about this because this is, you know, within the last hundred years, this is within relatively recent memory. And the idea of, for example, trying to, um, you know, keep in touch with uh, the members of the AJC and that requiring me to travel all over North America on a regular basis is kind of staggering to me. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, frequently exhausted just as it is. And I have the wonderful advantages of, of being able to reach out uh, instantaneously, you know, pick, pick up a cell phone and call somebody, drop somebody an email, you know, post a message on, on social media. Um, the idea that I that this would have to be done primarily by phone and by post and and by uh, frequent travel all over the country is is sort of striking. So he was privileged in that regard that his uh, work afforded him uh, the possibility of keeping in touch with the various branches of these orders. Um, his Work with the Rite of Memphis and Mizraim was, I think, particularly important to him. And the last national convent of the International uh, Sovereign Sanctuary of Memphis Mizraim takes place September 2nd, 1939. And this is a momentous day because the very next day, a war breaks out in Europe. By June of 1940, uh, the French government has acceded to, uh, to Germany, and we see the establishment of what's sometimes known as the Vichy government. By August of 1940, the government had explicitly prohibited and dissolved all secret societies, not just Freemasonry, but they explicitly included things like Rosicrucianism and Martinism. Many of the organizations that uh, Chevillon was a member of or headed at this time were explicitly mentioned in Vichy legislation. So we know that he is, is, is under scrutiny uh, from the French national militia, um, that he's somebody that is, is on their radar. In 1943, um, he's arrested at work, though he's released uh, the same day. Though 
I think one of the most important things about this arrest in 1943 is that um, his papers and, and many of his books are, are seized. And that, of course, is going to provide a lot of, of fodder for these, um, these local militias. On March the 25th, 1944, he was at Madame Bricot's home in Lyon and was arrested by a group of people claiming to be the police. And I think that it's um, it, it's worth specifically mentioning that the, this is a claim that they are making, that they are likely not um, you know, actual members of, of the state, uh, but rather an independent militia. His body is discovered a few hours later, around 1045, still warm by the side of the road. And he had been uh, shot, peppered with a, a machine gun, had been shot with a pistol, um, and had also uh, apparently been tortured. Madame Bricot definitely believed that he was, was killed in order to suppress many of the organizations that he led. And there is strong evidence to suggest that he was killed by members of the Amélie de Doré-Ardamont, which is a wing of the, uh, the anti-terrorist movement. Um, they had a, a practice of the kind of life for a life, that if one of their own had been uh, killed by members of the, the resistance, the underground, uh, that they would uh, very publicly take a life in retaliation. And they targeted, of course, Jews, Freemasons, and bankers. And so it makes sense that Chevillon was a, a, a prime target. It seems unlikely that Chevillon was particularly politically active. Um, we know that he, you know, there were uh, notes in his uh, private diaries about his uh, studies of, of the synarchy, uh, but he certainly does not appear to have been, as some people have suggested, um, part of a, a, a synarchic plot. Um, so this was not a, a political execution. This was not a political assassination. It was very much a, a martyrdom. He was uh, buried next to Jean Bricot. Um, and when she died in 1958, Eugenie Bricot was, was buried in the, the same cemetery. Chambillon's successor and very, very close friend, René Chambillon, uh, who had the ecclesial name of Taurinatus, had this to say about, about Chevillon's death. And I wanted to include this because I found uh, these words to be, to be very moving. He said, yes, this good, exceptional man, someone you meet only once in a lifetime died slain by wickedness and ignorance, like his legendary predecessor, Hiram, and like his master, Jesus. And I, I found that, that description of his death uh, very, very poignant. His written works um, are not terribly extensive, but they, they're short and incredibly dense. Um, many of them have not been translated in, into English, but they are 
uh, pretty widely available in French. Uh, perhaps his most famous work is uh, Le Vrai Visage de Freemasonry, um, the, the true face of Freemasonry, um, and also uh, a short text called it Verbum Caro Factum Est, of course, the, and the word became flesh, uh, which I think very closely associates uh, him with uh, the Joannite and the Joannine uh, tradition. That text was set to be published uh, shortly before his death. Um, and even though it was passed by the Vichy censors, um, something that I find striking in and of itself, um, it was never published simply because of a number of, of bureaucratic issues. Chevillon, I believe, is uh, a true martyr and somebody who was, was willing to give his life for uh, the principles uh, in, that he held dear. And despite uh, the hatred and the, the violence of the regime under which he lived, um, he continued to pursue his spiritual goals and to be a help to others on their own journey. The word martyr, and uh, this uh, again sort of dovetails with some of the other talks that we've uh, uh, had this, this weekend, um, comes from the, the Greek martyrs, which simply means a witness. And originally it has a, a very generic sense. Um, you know, somebody who testifies in court is a, is a martus. Um, but the Christian usage in particular uh, marks a, a change in the, the connotation of this word. And we can see this first movement, I think, in um, its use in the first chapter of Acts, where uh, the, the goal is to select a replacement for uh, the apostle Judas having hanged himself. And we're told that the people from whom the apostles have to choose are, are all great witnesses. They are martyrs in this sense to, uh, to the faith. Now, they're all still very much alive. Right? So clearly we're using this word martyrs in uh, a different sense here. And yet, these are people who openly confess their Christianity despite the profound risk. And the idea that there is a sense of, of danger or risk, in my mind, connects even this earlier sense of martyrdom with the process of initiation. Initiation, as I've argued in the past, always carries with it a sense of risk, whether that's real or perceived. Uh, we know that in traditional initiations, there was real risk to, to life or life and limb, that there was real danger involved, that in order to demonstrate one's commitment and worthiness to pursue the mysteries, one had to be willing to, to risk one's life. In modern initiations, the, the perceived risk is to life and limb, uh, you know, that even if we're talking about initiations into a, a, a college fraternity or sorority, there is, there is a sense of danger, a sense of, of risk, of psychodrama. But 
there is a real risk in initiation as well. And the real risk, I think, is, is very, very specific in, in Freemasonry, in Rosicrucianism, in, uh, in Martinism. And that's a risk to something that is much more precious than our bodily life and limb. It's a risk to our preconceived notions of ourselves and, and our place in the world. And so to be a martyr, even in this early sense, where it is simply about taking the risk of publicly avowing a faith commitment, seems to be closely associated with the idea of, of the initiate. Uh, already in New Testament use, we can see that the word is beginning to, to transform, that being a witness in this regard is not like being a witness in court. Um, but Eusebius, in the ecclesiastical history, relates a, a particular story which I think marks the, uh, the specific usage of the term martyr to designate uh, someone who has given their life for the faith. Now, I'm not you know, suggesting that this is some sort of magical overnight transformation. This is part of an organic shift that's that's taking place. But he tells the story of the confessors, sometimes referred to as the martyrs, interestingly, of Lyon, precisely the place where Chevillon spends much of his life and uh, faces his, uh, his death and gains the martyr's crown. In 177, uh, a number of Christians in Lyon are imprisoned and tortured for their faith, but they survive and they are released. And having survived that ordeal, they explicitly refuse the title of martyr and reproach those who, who apply it to them and say that this is a term that ought only to be applied to those who have, have made that ultimate sacrifice. And so it's clear that at this point, the term has, has transformed. So it becomes used in, in this modern sense of someone who loses their earthly life because of their testimony. The Christian is not permitted to seek martyrdom. Uh, St. Gregory of Nazianzus uh, says, uh, it is mere rashness to seek death but cowardice to refuse it. And I've always been struck by this passage. It seems very Aristotelian uh, to me. Um, when we talk about the Aristotelian virtues, there are always a, a moderation uh, between uh, you know, two vicious extremes. And when Aristotle talks about bravery, it's uh, the extremes of cowardice on the one hand, but a kind of foolhardiness or rashness on the other hand. The way I describe this in my, my classes is to say, if we're all sitting in class and uh, somebody walks in the door and, and rolls a, a live hand grenade onto the middle of the classroom, and we all you know, duck for cover and somebody throws themselves onto that grenade and takes that blast, what they've done there is virtuous. What they've done there is extraordinary. What they've done there is, is a kind of... of you know, virtue of courage. If you're sitting alone 
in a room and somebody rolls in a, uh, a hand grenade and you jump on the hand grenade, you're not, you're not a hero. You're, you're an idiot. Um, so it's, it's one thing to, to, to chase after martyrdom. Um, that is, there's no virtue in that, but there's no virtue in, in being a coward either. There's no virtue in in hiding who you are for fear of of the persecution of of others. The modern Gnostic Christian rarely faces persecution of the sort that we see under Nero or Galerius in the modern world, though we should not doubt that there are places where religious persecution of all kinds proceeds apace, not just for, for Christians, but for Muslims, for Jews, for Buddhists, for Hindus, the, for, for Sikhs, for, you know, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. The sacrifice of Constant Chevillon is a reminder that, that the forces of intolerance, and hatred will always threaten people of goodwill, whatever their faith. And we honor Chevillon's sacrifice, I think, when we unashamedly live the principles that, that we've espoused, and when we act in service to God in the person of our fellow human beings, as he did. So thank you very much. It's a very, very brief uh, sort of uh, uh, layout of Constant Chevillon's life somebody that very much, I think, deserves his place on the uh, ecclesiastical calendar of the AJC. And thank you very kindly. That was excellent. I, uh, I only had uh, one comment to make myself in the, in the realm of, of uh, esoteric uh, history. It, it's interesting that, you know, while, while he's got, uh, you know, successors in office, he doesn't really have successors in in lineage unfortunately in some respects specifically episcopally off the top of my head and i could be wrong um you know i know there are people that carried on after him in martinism in memphis uh, misraim but the the question of whether or not he consecrated he he did ordain some deacons but the, i think that the question of whether or not he consecrated bishops there's been there's been dueling claims and we have we have uh, a list of an alleged uh, lineage in our succession that comes from constant cheville but there are different groups. Some groups claim it, and other groups claim, um, you know, it never happened. There was no no evidence for it, so we include it for the sake of completion. So, but I find it interesting because if I, that's I think the case, there is, if, if you'll allow me, I, I think there is real good reason to uh, to believe that he uh, did consecrate uh, Chambayon. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I I think that it would have it would be unusual. I think for him not to have done so, um, particularly because he seems to have been keenly aware that he that that he was in danger. Um, yeah. You know, he had been arrested before, um, and because he is he is somebody who thinks about centralized succession um, as a way of preserving continuity, because. Um, you know, of his, his commitment to the sort of Grand Lodge model of, of esoteric work. Um, it would very much surprise me if he had not taken the uh, preemptive 
action of of consecrating Chambillon. Yeah, I I think that you know if it if it if it does exist, if that thing is accurate, well then, you know it's something that that uh, you know flows in into our stream. And if it doesn't, it also says that uh, you know um, you know that this is this is a this is a person who who now you know in eternity um, belongs to every church that participates in the movement. So if one person has it, they likely all have it. And if nobody has it, there's still a wider kind of participation in that principle. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, Thanks. Uh, thank you for this presentation. It's uh, <clears throat> yeah, fascinating historical figure, and uh, uh, always always interesting to hear these uh, stories. Um, I think I know the answer, but I thought it might be worth asking anyway. Does the does the modern HAC place any spiritual significance on martyrdom? This was really the, the question, the, the broader question that I uh, wanted to, to give some thought to. And I think certainly um, the idea of the willingness to, uh, to, to give one's life uh, for one's, one's principles is something that, that we generally hold to be, uh, to be admirable. Um, whether we have a sort of particular, the, the Roman tradition has a specific place for martyrdom, right? I mean, because of its history in vis-a-vis uh, -vis Rome. Um, and, and, and so the idea of martyrdom plays an outsized role in, in Roman Catholicism. And I don't think that we have that same, that same comportment. Um, I, I don't think that there's any sense that, um, you know, being a good Gnostic and, you know, getting gunned down in the streets, well, that's a ticket to the Pleroma right there. Um, it doesn't work that way, right? And yet, I would say that somebody who is so committed to, uh, to the, the principles of, of Gnosis and to the... Uh, uh, you know the the service of of the sacred flame, that they are willing to to give their lives for that. Um, that's just it, it, it's it's not so much what makes me confident that they uh, have achieved reintegration. Um, it's not that's not why they re achieve reintegration, but it seems to me a pretty good indication that they were well on the way. Um, so I, I think that that's the right question to ask. Um, again, this I think comes back to to the question that comes up over and over again about our particular uh, you know view of of the afterlife and of reintegration and of the life afterlife. And I think that the Roman view of martyrdom does specifically. Um, you know, sort of play into that, right? That the significance of martyrdom is tied inexorably to the um, uh, to to the idea of the the heavenly reward. Um, so I, I think that it does problematize the idea of of martyrdom for perhaps Gnosis and generally certainly for the. Um, the AJC, um, 
but I don't think that uh, we need to have that kind of uh, otherworldly or supernatural commitment to say that there's something extraordinary about somebody who's willing to sacrifice their lives for their for their spiritual principles. Um, a couple of people in the the chat have uh, Karen brought up um, our old. Um, uh, invocation of of Uriel, which was I, I uh, you know I, I I tend to agree. I do I do love those uh, those uh, the, the previous form. Um, you know, Hell Uriel, Dark Lord of Earth, companion of all of those who offer up themselves, uh, who gave their lives in the defense of others. Um, that's that's a, a beautiful sort of, of connection to, to that particular archangel. And I certainly don't imagine that, that we can think about martyrdom without, um, you know, that coming to mind for us. And um, as uh, His Eminence has said, um, just because it's not printed doesn't mean we can't say it. So... Uh, yes, Dark Lord of Earth is is kind of yeah. Everybody loves the uh, Dark Dark Lord of Earth. The other, I was going to say, the other line in there um, because there are a couple different variations on it. The uh, you know the uh, um, you know companion of all those who offer up their lives in defense of others, who leadest all at last into the nether shore, right? So there's uh, there's there's a few uh, there's a few bits that that go in there. Uh, uh, for which I, which I'm fond, and I you know, and I'm also fond of of, of the new ones because they're written in community to lead, uh, leads all at last to the uh, undiscovered country from from which no traveler returns, which of course is ganked from Freemasonry, which is also ganked from Shakespeare. Shakespeare. So uh, you know, I think they they uh, they they all the work only plagiarized from the best. So. <laughs> Was there another question? Uh, yes, there's a question there from Park. Wow, that's that's such a, a, a great question, and um, you know, in, in my um, worth worth reading out for the yeah, for the benefit of people I'll who will live in the audience. This isn't uh, included. Yeah. Um, Angie's uh, Deacon Angie brought up uh, some concerns about the the dark side of of martyrdom and um in my my classes uh, because i'm a, a instructor in philosophy i talk a lot about uh what it means for something to have spiritual value and um when we say that something has spiritual value at its apex it means that there's something that is more valued, that, more valuable than my continued physical existence. And, and so I ask my students, I say, well, what kind of things do people say that they would give their lives for, right? What things do they say that they would die for, right? And certainly we say, well, you know, my children, right? I would die for, for my children. I talk about that. You know, I would die for, uh, you know, the country, right? I would die for the flag. Right? Not the piece of fabric, but the principles that the nation represents. Um, and people say that they would die for their faith. But for every person that is, is you know, willing to, uh, you know, to, to claim the martyr's crown 
because they are are unwilling to bend in the face of oppression, there's somebody who's willing to fly a plane into a building. And that's daunting. That is disconcerting. And I think that uh, one of the, uh, th th that's why I included this um, proscription uh, from, uh, from uh, Gregory uh, that, that to seek after uh, martyrdom isn't really martyrdom, right? That, that there's no virtue in, in seeking after uh, the martyr's crown, but to refuse it when it is presented is mere cowardice. Um, and so I think that that, that can help us um, think about martyrdom in this positive sense. But that, that, other, that other side of the, you know, you know, the other edge of the blade is always there. And uh, I think it would be a mistake if, you, uh, if we were to, to ignore that. So I'm, re I'm really glad that, that that was brought up. And it's funny that uh, his, his eminence has said, you know, I would die for some prime rib. That's actually the way that I uh, introduce uh, in my class. I say, you know, when we say, what would we die for? And not, oh, it's really hot outside. I would die for a glass of lemonade, right? You know, but what do we say that we would legitimately uh, die for? Um, and um, so, uh, Park, you're following up this question. Um, say more about that. So, Park has written, uh, but when it's genuinely presented, um, when is that an, an illusion or a deception? And I, I remember um, uh, a, a, a dear friend and colleague, Alfonso Lingus, when he would uh, present papers at uh, philosophical conferences, um, people would always ask him these wonderful questions. And his response was pretty much always the same. And it sounded like a cop-out, but he was, was actually absolutely earnest. And he would say, well, obviously you think this is, you've got something to say about this. So I'd much rather hear what you have to say about this, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull that on you, Park. I, what do you What do you think about that that idea that 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 there is always this risk of of illusion? So, uh, sure. I was uh, mostly trying to channel, I think, the concern that I heard from Angie, which was um, that there is a, a level in a cultic situation, there is a level of manipulation that mm. goes on. So folks are presented with, if you really care about your own salvation, you're gonna fall on the hand grenade. Right. Um, but yeah. it, isn't, it isn't actually a rational, that's not actually the situation. And it's not uh, beneficial or appropriate for the person oh, to fall on the hand grenade. Yeah. Yeah, so. that's, uh, it's, that, that's absolutely true. And I think that, that our, our contemporary insights into uh, psychology are, are what make this particularly uh, poignant. Um, it, it's one thing if we're dealing with, I mean, with Chevillon, we're dealing with actual Nazis. Um, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, people who are, 
yeah, uh, pretty unquestionably the baddies. Um, so so I, I don't think there's a, a question of deception there, but um, there are there is always that danger of of a cultic community um, presenting the danger of persecution as much greater than it is. And um, not to, to, to delve into um, uh, politics too much, but um, we see um, you know, the, the claims of Christian persecution um, in the United States, um, that you know, Christians are are being once again being persecuted for their faith, and I don't really think that's true. Um, you know, I, I think that given the the power, excuse me, the power that mainstream Christianity wields in public life in the United States, it's hard to say that 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 Christians are being persecuted. Um, but that perception of persecution can be a really, really powerful tool of manipulation and, and powerful tool of, of, um, of control. And, and so I think that um, I, I don't have a good answer um, aside from saying, I think it's a really important thing to be conscious of and to be, be aware of. And I think that, um, you park with your your psychological insight. Um, people like uh, His Excellency, um, people like Deacon Angie, are are really the the ones who are much better qualified uh, to to speak to that than than I am. Um, his Eminence has a a question, but he can't put his hand up. Yeah, I was just gonna, and I've been interrupting people all, all weekend, so I'm trying to. Uh, you know, trying to to reduce that. I was just going to mention talking about the, the the you know the dark side of things. It's that same dark impulse that you know, um, rather than rather than falling on the grenade, you know, has people, you know, uh, fall on a container of rice pudding and Nike sneakers, right? Because that is that is seen. You know, something like for example the the uh, well, like the the Hellbop, Heaven's Gate, cult. That's 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 the reference, right? The uh, you know where they're they're going to fall on the right putting in a hard time about the reference. So uh, okay, yeah, where where they're doing that, where essentially they're just you know they're just tossing it away. And the other thing you had mentioned talking about the, the distinction of you know confession or confessor versus martyr that actually develops much in the same way that priest and bishop were kind of not separated in the in the first two centuries as such. Those terms weren't separated. Um, you know, in the beginning between martyr and confessor, but later on through history, you you have them develop so that confessor, at least in the in the West, where you know uh, Romans and Anglicans and whatnot are are concerned, confessor um, takes on uh, you know the quality of somebody who who suffers greatly for their faith but doesn't actually die. Um, right. You know, I think it's called the the white martyrdom as opposed to the red martyrdom. Um, is is kind of how they they describe it, but that's where you get, I think, you know, folks like Edward the Confessor, that that, well, that type and the of Confessors thing. of Lyon. Um, you know, yeah. it's what I mean. Originally, we refer to the the martyrs of Lyon, but they they don't die, <laughs> so 
uh, yeah, we now use the 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 term uh, confessors of the uh, Karen. See, I was chatting earlier, but um, Bray actually has a comment. Just one second. Uh, I was thinking about um, because, of course, part of my part of my religious history is in our deal faiths, uh, where there was an act of participation and an act of, um, it, you know, it's like you may actually give your life for this kind of thing in a very real way. And I was thinking about that as you were talking and saying that the the combination that you were making of it being silly and also being meaningful was something that I really recognized that I had to deal with. Like, uh, it's silly for me to sit here and, and put myself in this position where I could absolutely die just because somebody is telling me to. And yet the act of my doing that takes on much better meaning. And I think that it also speaks a little bit to this question about how is it that we know that, that what we're doing is, uh, is along the right lines. And it's something that I've, that I've also had to deal with personally recently and in choices that I've made to, to, to potentially travel overseas and, help and things like that, where, where my life might be in line with that, on the line with that. And I think that when we are able to get past fear, when we're able to approach things from a religious context where we're not scared of the outcome, that creates a certain amount of clarity there. And actually, I think that it extends beyond that as well. Like, um, I remember when I was younger, one of my, uh, one of the, I, I ran an ISP and one of the clients went under indictment with the SEC. And I didn't realize at the time that as they roll in, they roll in hard and everybody is, you know, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. And I was very scared about, you know, uh, potential threats that were being made of me and things like that. And my father said, you know, you have to make yourself okay with whatever that eventuality is, or else you're not able to think about it clearly enough to choose. If all that you're doing is reacting and, and scared and, and giving in to something and not able to, not able to actually do something, you're not acting in the world. You're not, you're not efficacy in the world in any way, shape, or form. When you've made yourself okay with that, they roll in and say, I'm going to take your life away and put you in jail. Fine. I'm okay with that. You know, we're going to do this to you. We're going to take things that you have. We're going to take things that you don't have. We're going to destroy your family. We're going to, you know, pepper spray your name, whatever it is. That was pretty scary. Once you're, once you've made yourself okay with that, you can choose in a different way. And I wonder if part of initiation and the fact that initiation the third degree of most all initiation deals with death, death explicitly mm -hmm. doesn't have something to do with confronting that fact, making yourself okay with those things in general. I ran across this meme that uh, the other day that was uh, what if equals fear and even if equals faith. And for some reason that hit me kind of hard that day. Yeah. Anyways, just some random thoughts there and things. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah. 
certainly people, certainly people would look at much of what I do and say, well, you're tempting death. And, and in fact, his eminence has told me as much, but, uh, and he may be right, but it's at the end of the day, for me, it's about living in a different integrity and not being scared. And, and where that line is, is I think individual and, and complicated, but yeah, we benefit sure. nothing from it in fear. Yeah. So anyways, sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Anything, anything else that people want to? Um, yeah, if that, if that's all, then what we'll do is we'll, we'll take a break. We've got about uh, roughly about uh, two hours and yes, that, that was a very excellent uh, presentation. And one of the things that, uh, you know, uh, you noted, and my, my, my collar has disappeared because I'm preparing for, for mass, um, but uh, uh, you noted that, yeah, the AJC had uh, canonized um, Constant Chevillon, um, you know, as a, as a modern uh, Gnostic saint, uh, and many other uh, churches did also, and I think we were actually the first step out of the gate to do so. Um, so I'm also happy to see that the, the AJC has the opportunity, you know, even though, as you mentioned, that there are other organizations in the French speaking world who, who have been able to compile this information that, you know, I think it's, it's nice that we're able to present something in, in English for this side of the water. So I think that's very, uh, you know, uh, imp both important and, and, uh, and overdue. And, uh, I think, uh, Given that, also, I think I know exactly the day that I'm going to release your talk. <laughs> so uh, that 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 makes it easy. I mean, just like right. we put out, uh, uh, you know, the talk on the Cathars on Monsignor Day, right? To right. to underline that and give people an opportunity to really explore that kind of in an animistic type of moment. 